Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Down the line from Dublin, we have Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And this week, we'll be discussing Martin's recent trip to Washington, D.C., where he was in conversation with various delegates at the Institute of International Finance meeting on the fringes of the IMF. Secondly, we'll be catching up with the latest fallout from Brexit. And finally, a look at Deutsche Bank and why it was given special treatment in the summertime stress tests. First, though, to your gallivanting, Martin. You are just back from Washington, D.C., where I think it was fair to say there was a fairly interesting series of conversations going on around some of the big themes that are affecting banking at the moment. What were those themes? Even though, obviously, the US election is on everyone's minds, Europe is a big focus. I think the most of the discussion was about problems that are being created by the old continent, ranging from Brexit to Deutsche Bank and the difficulties that Germany's biggest bank is facing, negative interest rates and the problems those are causing for the European banking sector, quantitative easing in general and whether it's working and having the desired effect or whether it's lost its firepower. And of course, Europe's running feud with the Basel Committee over the so-called Basel IV proposals to increase or tighten capital requirements on the banking sector. We'll come on to a couple of those issues in the second and third segments. We'll be talking about Brexit. We'll be talking about Deutsche Bank's stress testing, but also in the context of that Basel IV agenda. But let's focus in on one of the other points you mentioned, the negative interest rates, where I think you were talking to PwC's Nigel Voot about this. What did he have to say? His point was that this is going to increase the pressure on banks to reform and to restructure their businesses. But it also makes it harder for the banks to do that because they're making less money. Well, let's hear what he had to say. Your first reaction would be, yes, it would be accelerating change because they're going to have to change their business models to to survive and make more money. The other side of it, though, is that they don't make as much money, so therefore they haven't got as much money to invest in changing their organisations. So they're going to have to do some radical changes to the business models they've currently got to create the capital they need to accelerate that change. But the ones that survive will be the ones who do embrace that change quickly and recognise that they're going to have to change their business mix very rapidly. And the sooner they do that, the better. But they're probably going to have to resize their current businesses, create the capital they need to allow them to change the business models for the future. And then hopefully become that customer-centric organisation that we all need. Another big topic on the agenda last week was Brexit and the various dimensions of that. I think you were at one of the panel sessions where this was a big topic of discussion. 
I was. And also a lot of people were reacting to the noises that were coming out of the British Tory party, which had just had its annual conference. And Theresa May had made a big speech laying out a very tough position on immigration and criticising the international elites. So that didn't go down very well with most of the people in Washington last week. Speaking at one of these panels was Valdis Dombrovskis, the European Commissioner in charge of financial regulations. So it was interesting to hear what he had to say about the upcoming Brexit negotiations. In a sense, indeed, uh, it's a strategic choice for UK government to make what kind of relations they want to build with the EU within internal market or outside internal market, while understanding that being within internal market comes with conditions and respect of those conditions. There are others to be financial contribution to the EU and respect of EU legislative base. But in any case, now we need to wait for a formal notification, which presumably will come by March, and that will be the formal start of negotiations. The counter view, which was shared by, I think, most of the financial services executives who were wandering around Washington last week, was that whilst the two sides are drawing up these seemingly tough negotiating stance, it's creating an awful lot of uncertainty. And that uncertainty is pretty worrying from the point of view of what happens to the City of London and what happens also to the so-called Capital Markets Union project that the EU has to try and increase the amount of financing for the economy that comes from capital markets as opposed to the banking system. And I think this is summed up by Vittorio Grilli, who is the the uh, chairman of JP Morgan's investment bank in Europe. He's also an ex-finance minister in Italy, so he's been on both sides of this equation, and here's what he had to say. For financial markets, I, I am reasonably worried for two reasons. One is, in fact, uh, what happens to this very important financial centre, which is London. And uh, my own view is that London is in the UK but it's not British, you know, somehow London is bigger than Britain. And uh, I would argue that it is almost a public good. It is, it is uh, the largest financial center in the world. It happens to be what was the European Union, uh, soon uh, will be outside the European Union, but still there. And it's providing uh, a huge amount of funding to the world and to Europe as well. And I think that is a question of, uh, is a reality, is a question of uh, efficiency, is a question of, uh, existence of uh, a ecosystem which is very very unique and uh, is not easy to reproduce somewhere else and depending on how the negotiation go you may need to reproduce it somewhere else maybe not exactly in the same form but that process you know will will bring a lot of uh, disruption and inefficiency in the system and the second is that you know, the commissioner was right. Uh, the case for capital market union, if anything, now is even stronger for Europe. And I totally agree. We have seen that during the crisis, continental Europe especially is too bank dependent. We need to reduce the dependency. And the only way to do it is to make the rest of the capital market stronger. But this is easier said than done. And uh, one thing is to go full speed or a good speed, nothing is full speed in Europe, the good speed by building a capital market union with London 
which is huge, <laughs> helping that kind of development. Now, without London, the starting point is completely different. So, the need is higher, but it's not as easy as it would have been if London would have part and the UK would have part of, of the picture. Let's move on to the second topic, and at risk of treating listeners to an embarrassment of Brexit, let's look now at a couple of other aspects of this whole debate. I'm joined by Laura down the line from Dublin. Welcome, Laura. You and I actually collaborated on a big number in Monday's newspaper on how exactly the strength of financial centres outside London compares and who looks best placed in terms of the status of their financial centres to take business from London. And you crunched the numbers on this and came up with some quite interesting data. Yeah, so basically what we did was we went and looked at the number of banks licensed across eight of the countries which are most likely to take business from London. And what we found out from that was that Frankfurt has by far and away the most developed financial centre both in terms of the total number of banks it has, so it has around 2,500 banks there, and also in terms of the presence of the largest and most complex banks. So if we think about a group of 10 of the large international banks who have very big presences in the UK now, eight of those 10 already have a subsidiary in Frankfurt, and the other two already have a branch there. So there is a large level of familiarity, there's a very developed infrastructure there, and that all points towards Frankfurt being very well positioned. The other countries who come up well then would be Luxembourg, Paris slash France, and then also Dublin. And the theory being that basically a bank that already has a subsidiary somewhere else in the European Union is most likely to build that up, or if it's a latent subsidiary, to reactivate it as a means to operate right across the single market, whereas they might in many cases be doing that at the moment from the UK. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you talk to bankers, they are much more comfortable talking about expanding in areas where they already have some degree of a presence rather than getting into a country where they aren't operating at all. And there's a number of different reasons for that. On the licensing front, it can take a very long time to get authorization to open a new bank. So it's obviously much easier if you either already have a bank there. Even if the bank that you have there doesn't have the license for the same activities which you are now hoping to carry out, it's much easier to have a negotiation on the regulatory front if you already know the supervisor, you have the existing relationships and you have an existing structure to build. Then when it comes from the pure practical stuff, you already know the labour laws, you already have some office space. So you're just coming at it from a much firmer start point. There's another couple of factors that we should mention here. I think fair to say that certainly the bankers that we've talked to are not suggesting that they're going to move thousands of jobs wholesale from London to anywhere else, Frankfurt or any other financial centre. And it's most likely to be in, in small numbers, at least initially. But over time, this could build up an alternative hub to quite a substantial degree. And then in that context, quite interesting, as we reported also on Monday, that the German authorities are considering adapting their labour laws to make it more palatable for banks to relocate staff to Frankfurt. The thinking being that above a certain salary level, maybe €100,000 or 150000 or maybe another number, these types of jobs could be exempted from things like redundancy payment requirements and so on, which actually make jobs in Frankfurt pretty onerous from an employer point of view at the moment. Yes, I mean, if you talk to banks about moving people to Frankfurt, two big issues come up. The first, it's an issue of the lifestyle and the city, and there's a general perception that Frankfurt maybe isn't the most exciting place in the world to work. Then the other more serious issue is the issue around the labour laws. It's just incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive to sack people. 
there and that's an issue when you have a cyclical business like this because we always read about banks who are looking to cut back trading operations as we go through different times in the cycle so certainly I think it would be a big positive in terms of the chances of Frankfurt attracting more people if they did actually go forward and introduce some of these measures because the labour laws are designed to protect the weakest rather than these really high-end highly paid jobs. Yes, indeed. Before we leave this Brexit topic, we should talk about one of the other obvious fallouts that we've seen in the last few days, namely the plunge in the value of sterling, the so-called flash crash the other day. What does that mean for banks and what role have banks played in it? Any bank which has operations in the UK and which is based in the Eurozone, is based in the US and is making money in the UK is now making less in dollar terms or in euro terms than they were earlier this year, which is obviously a problem for them when it comes to actually pulling the earnings from the UK into their own group account. So there's that kind of accounting hit. Then you would be lucky if you have a big cost centre in the UK because that's obviously going to cost you less to run. In terms of the banks themselves, some banks may see some earnings power from this because they will see additional trading activity. That can really go either way because you might get a lot of additional trading around the volatile period itself, but it then might scare off your more risk-adverse investors from actually trading at all for a period afterwards. So that can kind of go either way. Then the other kind of technical thing that we see happening a little bit is that if you have a UK bank which has a lot of US assets, that can hurt them from a capital ratio standpoint now because the value of those US assets is going to increase when you translate that into your home currency. And if you have more assets in pound terms, then you're meant to have more capital against them. And most people tend to hold their assets in dollar and they would hold their equity in sterling. So that can be an effect there. So there is some concern that you may see the CET1 ratios of some of the UK banks falling purely as a technical consequence of this. Right. So it's more than just fun and games on the markets. It does actually have real world consequences. Thanks for that. We'll stay with us, Laura, as we move on to the third topic, looking at Deutsche Bank and the interesting developments we've discovered Caroline, you and Laura reported yesterday that Deutsche was given special treatment in recent stress tests. Yeah, that's right. We had found out that Deutsche was given special treatment because it was essentially allowed by the ECB to count $4 billion worth of proceeds from the purported sale of its stake in Washa, the Chinese lender even though that deal hasn't even now completed. And despite the fact that the rules around the stress test stipulated that only deals completed by the end of December 2015 were allowed to be counted. So it looks like special treatment because the authorities knew that they looked relatively weak on capital and, you know, needed to be given special treatment, otherwise the market would freak out? Well, it certainly doesn't look good. We don't know precisely why the ECB gave Deutsche this special treatment. Certainly, it wasn't extended to other lenders in similar positions, such as Kasha. I mean, I should point out for clarity that even if the proceeds of the sale were not allowed to be taken into account, Deutsche would have still been well above regulatory minimums during the stress test. I should also add for transparency's sake that another 20 lenders beyond Deutsche were given exemptions as well. However, different kinds of exemptions, different kinds of exceptions, exactly. And they were all within the ambit of the rules, section 6.4.2, to be precise, because we went through all the disclosures. And Deutsche was the only one that had this specific treatment that had a different note beyond that. And it seemed to basically go against the specific rules, which said that deals had to complete to be able to be counted for capital purposes. Exactly. Very explicitly so. 
And essentially the process is that individual banking supervisors and in the Eurozone banks cases, that is the single supervisory mechanism within the ECB. They sign off on such exemptions and then the stress tests themselves are run by the European Banking Authority. But the EBA has no power of veto, which is quite surprising, over these individual supervisory decisions. So, Laura, what's your theory on all of this? Um, it certainly doesn't look good because the whole idea of doing these EUI stress tests is that everyone's balance sheets are meant to be assessed in the same way. When you have a very large bank breaking a very explicit rule, it just smells foul. And there may have been very good reasons for the ECB to do this. But unfortunately, the ECB will not enlighten us as to what those very good reasons might be. The ECB has just been citing a policy that they don't and that they can't comment on individual institutions I think when we have something which is this obvious, I mean, there is a very clear rule and they very clearly allow Deutsche to break it. And unlike all the other instances where they refer to the point in the methodology which they use as the basis for it, they just don't explain this one at all. They just simply say that they allow Deutsche to do something different. I think that the ECB really does have some questions to answer here. Yeah, I mean, it's yet another question mark hanging over Deutsche, I suppose. Caroline? Yes, and in fact, the newest member of the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee on Tuesday morning hit out at this process. He says that giving Deutsche a pass in this way is just terrible for undermining stability. So, I mean, that's quite a swipe at his counterparts at the ECB. Yes. Now, there's a broader interesting debate here, isn't there, as well around European institutions sticking together in the light of a transatlantic spat over the strength of banks, essentially. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So at the moment, I think there is what I would characterise as a spat over the rigour of post-crisis reform in Europe and just how willing the authorities there are to do what it takes. So at the moment, there is a current reform package that's being worked on in Basel. We're calling it Basel 4. Well, indeed, the industry calls it Basel 4. If you say that to Mark Carney, he will push back quite strongly, although I understand the feeling within Basel itself is actually they're quite agnostic about whatever we call it. Mark Carney being the governor of the Bank of England, but also head of the Financial Stability Board, which is the kind of oversight authority. Yeah, it's a sister organisation to Basel, exactly. So the point is that Basel is doing quite a lot of work at the moment, and hopefully it will publish its final recommendations by the end of the year over these rules that they feel have been gamed for too long by banks in trying to work out their capital ratios. It's all about how banks model for their risk-weighted assets. Now, European lenders obviously have pushed back quite strongly against these reforms for quite a long time. There's been a lot of criticism that these reforms will lead to a significant increase in their capital. And that's all well and good. It's the typical kind of griping that you hear from the industry on any of these kind of reforms. However, last week was quite interesting because we actually had the European Union's financial regulation chief, Valdis Dombrovskis, himself say that Europe stood ready to walk away from this reform package because it unduly disadvantaged lenders across the block. And obviously Deutsche being one of the least well capitalised of Europe's banks is right in the middle of these crosshairs. Absolutely. There has been speculation that Deutsche might suffer from such packages like an increased, more rigorous leverage ratio, for instance. Well, that's something we will watch if they hit the end of year target. We'll come back to it then. I suspect it may drift into next year, so we'll monitor it anyway. Thank you both for that. And also thank you to Martin for his contributions. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.